I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Joanne Lippman about her book, That's What She Said, which takes a look at what's going on with women in the workplace by trying to make sure that men and women are talking about the issue and men and women are trying to think about how to change the environment. And after my interview with Joanne, we'll hear some book recommendations from Book Riot Associate Editor Sharifa Williams. But first, my conversation with Joanne Lippman. We are joined today by Joanne Lippman, the best-selling author of the book, That's What She Said, subtitled What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne brings her impressive experience as deputy editor at the Wall Street Journal, editor-in-chief at USA Today, the chief content officer at Gannett, to this seemingly age-old conversation. But rather than telling women to man up or demonizing men, she approaches the topic by defining the problem in a fresh way and, most importantly, articulating some strategies and new ways of thinking for both men and women that just might, just might, have us moving forward. Joanne, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. Joanne, you started at the Wall Street Journal how many years ago? Oh, well, I spent 22 years at the Wall Street Journal, so it, and it was more than 30 years ago that I started. And, and, and so over these 30 years, obviously, you started, you work mostly with men. This has been a problem that has existed throughout your working career, what was it that made this moment the right moment to write the book? Yeah, I actually started, that's what she said, more than three years ago. And the reason I started it is because, you know, I've worked with, primarily with men for most of my career, surrounded by men. My colleagues were male. My sources were male. Our, our audience was primarily male. And all of my mentors were men. I had a very good experience working with men. But at the same time, whenever I would get together with female colleagues, female friends, it was always the same conversation about the issues we face at work, though the issues of being feeling marginalized or overlooked, talked over, interrupted, not getting the same opportunities as men, and basically just not getting the same level of respect as the guys sitting right next to us. And, um, and I came to feel that this was an important conversation, but it was half a conversation as long as we were only talking to each other. Mm. To, you know, to, to get, we, we can only get to half a solution with 50% of the of population. So what I, I began to feel like we really need to bring men into this conversation. And so I, I ended up writing a piece that ran in the Wall Street Journal called, um, it was called Women at Work, A Guide for Men. That piece went viral, and that in turn led to this three-year journey writing, that's what she said. And, I, you know, we think we all know what the issue is. I mean, I started in a male-dominated profession in 1971. And we all know that what the problems are. But even I, when I read your book, seeing everything coalesced really made me take note. So could you spend a little bit of time defining the problem? 
sure. Every element of all day, every day, women run into a thousand times a day, um, obstacles big and small. And for the most part, what we are seeing right now, it's not the outright sexism that's really easy to label. You know, it's mostly these much more subtle issues that, that result from unconscious bias. I want to preface this by saying, of course, we are now in this Me Too moment where incidents of truly horrendous harassment and abuse are coming to light. Um, though, you know, those situations are enabled by a system that exists that doesn't value women. Mm. So at the extreme, you get the harassment, but it's enabled by the system that of everyday obstacles and, and you know, these, these smaller things that we face. And a lot of it is unconscious bias, which are these biases we have that are buried so deeply inside of us that we don't even realize they exist. Uh, but they have an outsized effect. So um, just as a for instance, there was a computer study that was done by Rice University, and they created a computer model of a company that's 50-50 male-female at the entry level, and they program in a 1% bias against women, which is almost imperceptible. By the time you get to the top of that organization, it's 65% male. So you can see that every level of an organization, and in fact, McKinsey and Lean In have found that at every level of an organization, women are 15% less likely than men to be promoted. And we see it, there's just a respect gap between men and women that I document, and that's what she said. Uh, for example, men, if you put a man and a woman in exactly the same job with exactly the same title, the man actually has more power and more influence than the woman does and is likely paid more than the woman is. And the fact that women are valued less, um, it comes out in the pay gap that still exists, but it also comes out in women's daily contributions being valued less. And I will just cite one example of that is women, my research has found women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. There was even a study done of the Supreme Court of the United States that found that female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices. So it happens to all women. And there are a lot of these little indignities, the interruptions, the being talked over, that happen to women all day, every day. So in in talking about this in your book, one of the things that you make clear early on that the tone in your book isn't that men are bad boys necessarily, or, you know, as I said in the introduction, that they're demonic. It's that they're unconscious about those biases. Are they afraid? Do they really not want women get? I mean, what is it that is driving them to contribute to these outcomes? Right, right, right. So the point you made, first of all, is so important. And I say it right up top in the book that no man bashing in this book, because that's not what it's about. It's about solutions. How do we come together to solve this? And supporting the book, in fact, I spoke primarily to men in leadership positions who are trying to close the gap because I wanted to learn from them, hear what the issues they were facing were as they tried to close the gap and what were solutions and tactics that they came up with. And you're right, fear is actually a major issue for, for a lot of men in wading into this. Um, there, is, there was a study done by Catalyst that asked 
supervisors, male supervisors, what might be a barrier to you being a champion for workplace equality? 74% of them cited fear. And part of it is fear of loss of status or championing women, which is a real fear because it does happen. Uh, women get, uh, uh, men who, who champion women can get abused, particularly by other men. Um, but a second piece of that fear was fear of saying the wrong thing. And uh, I want to allay all of that fear with that's what she said. I, I'm laying the issues out on the table. Here's what they are. Here's why they happen. Um, and here's what we can do, uh, what we can do about it. And I would say the vast majority, you know, there, there, there's a small proportion of them, right, who are already all in on this. Um, they're already to convert it. And then there's a small proportion of men on the other end, right, who are pretty much troglodytes, right? They're just like, you're never going to convert them. But there's a vast majority of men in the middle, which is guys who are good guys, who think they're good guys, who don't necessarily recognize when they're saying something that might be offensive to a woman or when they're talking over a woman. Um, and so we want them to recognize and we want to give them tools to help us work with us to close the gap. And to what extent, you know, you, you have so many great examples in the book about diversity training accomplishing the exact opposite of it, of its intent. So yeah. what what's going wrong with the diversity approaches to solving this problem? Yeah, so standard diversity training has failed. Um, there was a study actually done by a professor at Harvard who looked at more than 700 companies' diversity training programs over a 30-year period. And he found that for women, as well as for black men and women, it actually made things worse. They would have been better off had there been no training whatsoever. And there were a variety of reasons for that. But one of the, one of the major issues, frankly, was resentment on the part of the primarily white men who were the uh, subjects of the training, that these men felt like they were being punished. Um, so this training had the opposite effect of what it was supposed to. Uh, there is now newer kinds of training that try to circumvent that. Uh, you know, you hear about unconscious bias training. And in fact, uh, one of the companies I spent time with was Facebook, which allowed me to take unconscious bias training with its own employees. And that is, you know, the idea behind that is to say, well, you know, we're all biased. That's what unconscious bias is. So it's nobody's fault. And it's not just men, it's all of us. And so the idea with that is to say, here's ways to recognize your unconscious biases and here are some strategies to combat it. Uh, the issue I have is not so much with the training. The issue that I have is with the ownership of diversity and the importance of workplace equality. Too many companies basically delegate it to the HR department. Mm. And the HR department brings in a trainer and they do a couple of hours of training and boom, we're done. Well, that will never work because what we are talking about is the requirement is what we need is systemic change. We need culture change and the culture change is driven from the top and it's got to be owned by the head of the organization, whatever that organization is. If it's a company, it's your CEO and it's your chief financial officer. They need to understand that this is not only is it socially the right thing to do, but it is a business imperative because every piece of research shows you that organizations with, that are diverse are more successful in, by every measure, by financial measures, creativity, problem solving. Every piece of research will show you that they're, they're more successful. So the, the 
leadership must drive the change, not the HR department. So two things come to mind as I listen to you talk about that. One is, and this might seem like a perverse way of analogizing it, but, you know, in analyzing the election um, by Trump to the presidency, there was a feeling that there were people left behind who felt that their needs were not addressed until Donald Trump um, came up with a platform that seemed to be responsive to them. Is there any part of the resistance by men about them feeling like it's a zero-sum game? Oh, absolutely. That is sort of baked into men from childhood, the idea of a zero-sum game. And, you know, one of the things I looked at is just even from childhood, how we learn to communicate and to play. And little girls learn to play with one another in cooperative, collaborative games, uh, whereas little boys learn to play in competitive games where there's a winner and a loser. And um, that translates into how we act uh, in life and in work. And researchers have found that men more than women see the world as a zero-sum game. If a woman gains, it is at his loss. And so that, that is difficult to overcome. And, you, and the guys who I spoke to who were closing the gap, you know, had to get over that kind of recognition. They had to get outside the zero-sum game mentality. And, and, and I would think as we see a, um, a worry that the jobs won't exist, I would think that that's just going to be exacerbated. Well, you know, what's interesting is if you look at the the presidential election, um, people who identified themselves as angry were much more likely to vote for Trump. And in fact, um, one of the issues I look at is sort of the double standard in anger between men and women. And you saw that in the election where, where Donald Trump um, really owned his anger and was rewarded for it. He would actually go out on the stomp or in the, in the debates and say, I am angry. This country's a mess and I'm angry. Whereas Hillary Clinton had the exact opposite issue where she couldn't raise her voice. She had to, she had to walk on eggshells to make sure that she did not appear as the stereotypical angry woman. And even with that, there were times when even the mainstream press, um, would describe her in her crooked finger and lecturing like an angry nanny, right? So that kind of language, which is coming even from, you know, mainstream news organizations. So she had to be extra, extra careful. There was a really interesting study on anger, by the way. Um, one of the more interesting ones that I came across, and it had to do with a murder case, a real-life murder case that had been tried and, and the murder was, you know, murderer was convicted. But what happened was um, they they had um, researchers had participants come and play the role of jurors. They didn't know how this case was going to come out, and they were negotiating with four other jurors, and they were negotiating via computer. So what they did not know was that one of the jurors was programmed to be an angry holdout who disagreed with everybody else and was angry about it. If that angry holdout was a man he swayed the other jurors to his side because they said, oh, he's angry. He really must know what he's talking about. Mm. But if the angry holdout was a woman, the other jurors dug in their heels and they said, well, she's been irrational and hysterical and emotional, so I'm not listening to her. So 
it just shows you sort of that double standard. Yeah, I want to go back to something uh, you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago about these uh, gender roles happen right from birth. And coincidentally, I read an article last night in New York Magazine, and because I read articles out of order, I have no idea whether it was from two minutes ago or two years ago, but... (laughs) Um, But it was an article about parents are fighting to not have a gender put on their child's birth certificates, and they refer to them as babies, and they do not disclose to other people what their genitals might suggest their gender at birth was. Their theory is that only by eliminating the expectation of those around them and then for the child about that they are required to behave a certain way because of the gender they were born with, that they would eliminate that. Well, that's an interesting theory, but I will tell you that the parents will know what genitals that child was born with, and that alone could impact how they treat the child. So, for example, one of the pieces of research I came across found that um, mothers of um, baby boys routinely overestimate their crawling ability of baby sons, but they underestimate the crawling ability of baby daughters. Now, they're not doing that on purpose. Again, it's that unconscious bias. So in a minute, we're going to get to some of the solutions um, that you see, but I want to ask you a question about the Me Too movement. So I've had a couple of reactions. So one is I'm a little bit surprised that there are that many, you know, men exposing themselves. And it seems to me that all the press that that's getting is on the one hand good because it's empowering women to feel like they can speak up and and without being punished. On the other hand, I wonder if you think that the attention to Me Too is actually distracting or helpful to the real kind of gender bias that's going on in the workplace. Right. So I think the Me Too movement is incredibly important, and obviously that is real. Um, And there's much more of that sort of abusive behavior going on than I think most people have realized. So it's important to out that behavior. At the same time, if we focus only on that behavior, there's a danger to that. And my concern there is that if we focus on, I have heard people, particularly men, who say, well, if that's a bad guy, I don't do that. I don't expose myself, so I'm okay, right? And what that does is it negates all of these other issues that we're talking about. That's why I say this is a systemic issue. Um, Those smaller slights of being talked over, interrupted, not given the same respect, et cetera, et cetera. You add all that up and it adds into, it, it creates an environment which at its extreme allows us to turn a blind eye to the mm-hmm. really, really horrendous behavior at the top of an organization. So uh, eliminating just the worst of the bad behavior, like those guys, you know, the worst of the worst belong in jail. Um, and the, the truly horrendous uh, incidents of these guys who are exposing themselves, etc. Um, you know, that should be table stakes, but that's wrong. But getting rid of that behavior doesn't solve the larger systemic issue. And that's really what we need to focus on, right? We're never going to wipe out the worst of the worst if we can't fix the entire systemic issue that allows that behavior to happen. Does any of this make you worried about a backlash? Because 
you know, just since all of this attention, you hear good guys saying, you know, I don't know what to say. It makes me not want to go out to have a drink or or dinner with a business colleague, even though I would do it with a man to have. I don't I I'm going to have less women. I'm not going to be in an office alone with a woman. Are you or aren't you worried about that? I hear that, and I have very little patience for it. I have to be honest with you. I think that, um, first of all, there's never been a better time than now to get all these issues out on the table and talk about them. So um, it's actually a better time than it ever has been to engage with male and female colleagues. Um, I also really feel like that's an excuse to say, can't talk to women, can't, you know, mentor them. I I generally think that is an excuse for guys who don't want to do that in the first place. I look at my own mentors uh, who were really sponsors because they actually were able to not just mentor me and give me advice, but able to put me in a position to get promotions. I, as a very, very young woman, started at the Wall Street Journal, my boss, who was a young married man, you know, he didn't take me out drinking. He would say, my wife and I would like to take you in a date to dinner, mm. right? It, and it was perfect. It was great. It allowed you to, to create those social bonds, which are very important. But you don't want to un- underestimate the importance of social bonds in your workplace because that does help you then build on your professional career, and you need that exposure, right? We, we just did different kinds of activities, and I think that that, you know, you don't have to play golf. You don't have to go out drinking. You don't have to play poker. Um, but there are many, many other ways that men and women can interact um, that's appropriate and that helps build those ties. You know, the other thing that occurs to me, and I'm older than you are, but, you know, we might be put in the same generation. And I think in our generation, if I can subject you to that um, standard, we were as women working in a man's world, I too, like I've heard you say, had wonderful male mentors that contributed to my success. But I also had a high bar for being offended. Yes, yes, that is such a great point. And I, I, I spoke at a, um, a conference, an ADA conference, which is um, attorney. And a woman who was about my age came up to me and she said, we are the suck it up generation. Mm. As in, that's happened. I tell the story of when I was a young reporter. I was on the job for probably less than a month. And I went to go interview. I was 22. I went to go interview a businessman. He brings me into his office, closes the door, locks the door, and strips to his underwear. So, I mean, it was terrifying at the moment. I will tell you that because I, I did, but I didn't know the word sexual harassment. Like that phrase didn't even exist yet. This was the 80s. There was no Anita Hill yet. She was the one who popularized the phrase sexual harassment. So the only thing I knew was rape, right? And I'm, so I'm thinking, okay, this is scary, but as long as he doesn't rape me, I'm okay. Mm. So I took out my reporter's pad and I interviewed him in his underwear. I was like, I'm not going to let this guy rattle me. And I went back to my office and I told my boss what happened. He laughed. He thought it was hysterical. And um, anyway, you know, if that happened to a young 22-year-old reporter now, we would, like, call the police. But so here's the funny thing. I I wrote about this in an op-ed that ran in uh, USA Today. And what I was writing about was how my boss had laughed then, but nobody would laugh now, and that is progress. So after I wrote that piece, I was approached by all the young reporters in the newsroom who were like, oh, my gosh, did you get counseling? Do you have PTSD? How traumatic. And I was like, no, I'm really fine. Um, But then 
I was approached by the, let's say, most experienced reporter in the newsroom, a woman who has been there for, you know, 35-plus years. And she walked up to me, and she said, that was hilarious. She said, yeah. who, who among us has that not happened to? Right? So there's just this huge generational divide in what we, you know, what, what our tolerance. Which doesn't, I, I, I'm not suggesting, and I know you're not suggesting that that, makes it okay. I think it's I think it was wrong but pragmatic on our part to put up with more. But yes. I think yes. younger because women are right not to. I agree. And the issue for us frankly is that we um we weren't trying to we were not trying to change the world. We were simply trying to fit in to this world. Like, yeah. That was the first step was to fit into it. And the women now are like, wait a second, why why should I put up with that? Like, that's ridiculous. And also, younger women are much more angry, but I also feel like they're angry in part, they're angry at, at us. Like, why didn't you fix this yeah. already? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that there was a piece that you had, um, and we won't really have time to go into it, but where you talk about the cool girl syndrome. And I so remember early in my career where a guy would say to me, you know, if women were like you, then more women would get ahead. No, no, no. You're not going to get me to play that game. Definitely not. You know, yeah, I'm better. No, all women are like this. You're just not paying attention. But they would, you know, you were seduced a little bit to want to be part of their network and then throw everybody else under the bus. Well, that's the other issue. The queen bee syndrome is something that I'm hoping will go away as we have more women in leadership. But again, it's a systemic issue that set women against each other. It was not a normal, healthy instinct. It was, what it was is, you know, when women started coming into the workplace and they wanted to get ahead, there was a woman's block, right? There, there yeah. weren't, you weren't competing against the men to get that promotion. You were only competing against the other women. Right. And and you still hear today about women who say, you know, there's the women who get the top job and she doesn't want to help other women to get there as well. And I think there's there's a residual impact of, of that system. I also think, by the way, because I, I do a lot of live events and inevitably a young woman will get up and say, well, I have a female boss and she's awful. Mm. <laughs> and I will say, you know, Great bosses and terrible bosses, like that is not a gender-specific quality. There are great bosses and terrible bosses of both genders. So, Joanne, let's get to the positive side of this. So let me start with a basic question. Do you find having, uh, you know, the book's been out a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you finding men are willing to engage in the conversation and understand that we need men and women at the table to solve the problem? Yes, there are. You know, there's the men who are in the book who I spent a long, hard time looking for. Um, But I see more and more men. I just actually came from an event that was a women's group, and I had asked the women's group, uh, a very large women's group, and and I asked them to invite men to come. And I've done this before, and usually you get like a handful of men. And you know, this is still a small number of men, but there were several tables full of them. Like, it was good. Like, we're, we're seeing more and more men. I'm also very encouraged that I'm being asked to speak at, and the book is being adopted by, very largely male organizations. So um, the World Economic Forum, for example, which is very male-heavy, um, they just started a book club, and they chose That's What She Said as their first um, Nice. Book. 
Joanne, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And um, and I just a week or two ago came from um, Los Angeles speaking at the Milken Global Milken Institute Global Conference, which is primarily male financed bros, basically. And in fact, I was on a panel with Alex Rodriguez, the, the retired Yankee, um, yep. A Rod, and uh, about masculinity. And we sat up there talking about gender. And I thought, you know, a year ago, I cannot imagine this group. It was it was packed to the gills, standing room only, um, overwhelmingly male audience, um, and very young men. And I thought, you know, a year ago, this you could have had this conversation in this venue with these people. And, and I think that's real progress. You have a number of examples, starting with the country of Iceland and a couple of CEOs from different organizations that are trying to do things. Give us an example of what you see where someone is doing it right or trying to do it right. Sure, sure. So in the back of that, she said there's a I have a cheat sheet with a dozen examples of things that you can do right now to close the gap. And and one of my favorites is it's number one on the list is interrupt the interrupters, um, which is something that a number of the men who I spoke with talked about, which is when you're in a meeting, create a rule with you know a no interruptions rule so for men and for women, so that they can get their points out without being cut off. I think that's very effective. Um, there's another um, another couple of uh, strategies that people came up with was amplification, and men or women can do this, but, um, you know, women often aren't heard, and it's not our imagination. The research shows if you make up 20% or less of, an, or of, a, of a group, your voice is generally discounted or not heard. And uh, amplification is the idea that if you were to say something in a meeting, I immediately repeat exactly what you just said and give you credit for it mm. um, so that your idea doesn't die. And so that two minutes later, when a guy repeats exactly what you just said, he doesn't get the credit for it, which is generally what happens in these meetings. Um, I think everyone's experienced that, right? You say it, nobody hears it. A guy repeats it, and suddenly he's brilliant. Um, so, so, Joanne, um, are you optimistic that, you know, the change that you might have expected to see 30 years ago when you started at the Wall Street Journal, I would assume you've been disappointed um, in where we're at, where you might have thought we'd be at. How do you feel now about the change that really fundamentally can happen? We, when I graduated from college, we thought we were equal with the guys and we just assumed that we would march in lockstep up the ranks, and obviously that didn't happen. So um, that's very frustrating. On the bright side, I think there's a Me Too movement, um, the Time's Up, um, you know, rallying product, all of that has really helped put these issues out there in the open in a way that I've never seen in my life. Um, I feel like now is a moment that has never before happened in our time where there is an increasing realization that this is not just a female thing, not just a women's issue. This is an all of us mm. issue. Before I close, I like to ask authors, what's the book that changed their life? What's the book that changed your life, Joanne? The book that changed my life literally was Harriet the Spy. Harriet the Spy? Har- Harriet the Spy by <laughs> Louise Fitzhugh, which I first read when I was seven years old. Uh, by the time I hit sixth grade, like middle school, I was like, oh, my gosh, this can actually be like a real thing. This is journalism. 
Right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I think Linda Fairstein also mentions Harriet the Spy. It, it, it definitely was the most influential book because it, you know, it changed my life when I was little and set me on the path to where I am today. Uh, so we've been talking with Joanne Lippman, uh, the author of the best-selling That's What She Said. And in this 30-minute conversation, we've really just addressed the tip of the iceberg of what Joanne covers uh, in the book, not merely the obvious uh, about defining the problem, but the ways in which we can move forward and solve the problem, not because it's um, good for women as if that wouldn't be enough of a reason, but because it's actually better for companies, um, better for the world, better for our community. So, Joanne, I want to thank you for writing the book and instigating conversations at lots of places that they haven't been happening. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me and allowing me to to spread the word and have this conversation with you. Great, Joanne. Thanks so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you. Thanks again to Joanne Lippman. Now let's hear from Book Riot's Sharifa Williams. We are joined today by Sharifa Williams. She's the associate editor at Book Riot, one of the really great websites, podcasts out there today for readers. And she does a couple of things for them. She does the SFF Yay. And then she is also part of the podcast called Read Harder. So, Sharifa, welcome to Just the Right Book. Tell us about those two podcasts that you do. Okay, so yeah, SFF Yeah is a podcast that just started last year in June, I believe, was the first episode. So it's fairly new. Um, and Book Riot actually has a few newer podcasts, like our nonfiction podcasts and our crime and mystery podcasts. And SFF Yeah is just science fiction and fantasy. I co-host it with my fellow host, Jen Northington, who is a fellow science fiction and fantasy nerd. Um, (laughs) And we actually started out the podcast by telling our nerd origin stories, which was hilarious. Uh, But we just talk about science fiction and fantasy and all things speculative. And we go over some news that has happened in science fiction and fantasy. And sometimes that crosses over into just the world of strange science, uh, which is a really fun topic to cover once in a while. And then we recommend books. And each show, we talk about a theme and we talk about books that we recommend based on that theme. So it's been really interesting for both science fiction and fantasy based on a theme, because if, for instance, we come up with the theme of mermaids, we have to find a science fiction (laughs) book about mermaids as well as a fantasy book. So it's been really interesting. And I've read science fiction and fantasy all my life, but I have definitely discovered a lot of new realms in SFF since joining the podcast. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, have you always been a avid science fiction fantasy reader? So it sounds like you have. Is that what you read exclusively? No, actually, as um, and as an editor for Book Riot, it kind of behooves me to read rather broadly because all of our contributors write about all sorts of genres. Um, 
And I read science fiction and fantasy for myself. I've read it. I was probably more of a fantasy reader when I was younger than science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I came into science fiction relatively recently, probably a few years ago. Um, and so that's been kind of new territory for me as far as how much I read in science fiction. It's not just once in a while. Now it's all the time. Um, but I read all sorts of books, and I've recently been very into memoirs and personal essay collections, and my taste in books has definitely changed over the years, and it, I'm sure, will continue to change. And how did you get your start at Book Riot? That's actually interesting because we have a lot of writers on staff and as contributors who have been booksellers and librarians or have been involved in publishing in one way or another. I came into Book Riot without any of that experience. I started out um, in 2015, actually, so three years ago, just over three years now, and I just started out as a writer. I had originally written for Riot New Media Group as Um, a contributor for Food Riot, which was a site that was sort of similar to Book Riot, except it was all about food. And I just started out freelancing for them, and I loved the community there, and um, I just enjoyed the the spirit of the website. And I came into Book Riot because I missed that community once Food Riot um, ended, And I just wanted to work with those people again. I have always loved books. I've been an avid reader since I was probably three or four. Mm -hmm. I have never not been a big reader. So it felt natural not only to rejoin that community um, in terms of writing about books and talking about my reading life. From there, I just became a contributing editor, I believe, the following year or a year and a half later. And I actually just had my one-year anniversary as an associate editor last weekend, I believe. Well, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm curious. um, So one of the things that you mentioned about both those jobs that you had was your attraction to the community. Mm -hmm. Now, Your community is geographically dispersed. Is that right? Correct. We're all we're all over the place. So how do you what are the elements of functioning as a community when you're geographically remote? Um, Our biggest our biggest source of community is really our back channel, which is on Slack. So we use this platform called Slack. And I think uh, I would say a lot of businesses that don't have one physical office use Slack. I right. see it mentioned more and more. Um, and we use Slack and we have all sorts of channels there and we have a staff channel and we have one where all of our contributors are there. And that's how we communicate. It's basically like we're chatting all day, every day, and we talk about books and we talk about our lives and all sorts of random things. We actually have a random channel where we just talk (laughs) about anything that comes to mind. We have a channel called Ranch where we're just like, oh, something is bugging us and we need to vent. It's kind of amazing. I've never worked in an environment like this before. Um, All of my jobs before Book Riot, I used to work in communications at an all-girls private school, and all of my jobs before that were, you know, pretty traditional. 
in an office, you have your coworkers, you go to work every day from, you know, nine to five. This is very different. Everything is digital. We are all in different places, as you said. We're all on different, you know, we have different um, time periods. And so it's really interesting, but it's really fun. And it feels very of the time, I yeah. guess. What happens, uh, Sharifa, when you physically get together or don't you? Is it different? Do you find, I mean, have you become so uh, accustomed to communicating on Slack and digitally that there's an awkwardness or a pre-built-in familiarity when you physically see each other? There, I would say, is definitely a built-in familiarity. And we're also happy to see each other. For instance, uh, just recently, actually, we a few of us went to Book Expo right. in New York. Yeah, so we all met there. Um, and it's not everybody from Book Riot, even all the staff doesn't go, but when even a few of us see each other finally, and our, a lot of us are meeting for the first time, I at least feel immediately comfortable with them. Like, I know their names. Sometimes it's funny because, you know, you don't see their faces. Once in a while, people will have their icons that actually have their face in it. But, you know, it's tiny. It's the, the size of a thumbnail, literally. And so... You might not recognize the faces immediately, but when you hear their names and, you know, you recall everything, all the conversations you've had with them on the Slack channel, it just feels very natural. And Mm. there's always a sense of joy when we all get together and, you know, finally get to just enjoy ourselves. And at BEA, we had a karaoke night just for the Book Riot contributors, and it was such a good time. It was nice to have a face-to-face because we don't always get that. I'm just fascinated by the system as someone who has never worked in other than a traditional way, meaning going to work, having colleagues at work, functioning in that way. And we use other digital ways of communicating, but we're always not that far from each other. So it's just I'm fascinated by how well that can work and and the other benefits of it. Yeah, and I think that it definitely takes the right crowd of people because I have been on Slack channels before where it it didn't have the same sort of vibe, I guess. Yeah. We didn't feel encouraged to just say whatever we wanted and to you know, talk about all aspects of our lives and to brainstorm about ideas for pieces and that sort of thing. I don't know what it is about our community, but I think it's just that we're all very much there for each other. We're very supportive. You know, we're very transparent about that. Like, we will always have each other's back. We'll always be there to hear if you have any, if you're going through anything in your life, we're there for it. So it's definitely a unique community. I wouldn't say that it it would work for everybody, but it definitely works for Book Riot and the rioters there. Right. So speaking of books, what are you reading and loving? Oh, I'm reading a lot of great books. Actually, a lot of the books I've been reading are science fiction and fantasy, as you might imagine. And One of the books that I just keep coming back to and that I keep shouting about to everybody who will listen to me is Mem, that's M-E-M, by Bethany C. Morrow. It's just this fair, 
beautifully told alternate history science fiction novel about memory and trauma. Hmm. And the story is actually told by Dolores, who's a mem, which is an extracted memory. And she's anomalous in that she's human. So in this alternate 20s era Canada, science has afforded, you know, the wealthy the ability to extract their memories. And Patients have traumas extracted and leave them in this place called the vault to be forgotten. And the reason those patients, you know, don't want to revisit their mems isn't limited to just not wanting to revisit their traumas. It's also that the disturbing consequence of this extraction is that these mems are essentially clones, but they're clones who have no ability to live outside the memory they represent. So they're caught in this loop of reliving this memory that's been extracted from the patient, which is frightening. Like, one of the things I really loved about this book is I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. I'm the person who will, every time they have a Twilight Zone marathon, well, back in the day, now I only watch streaming shows. um, But back in the day when, you know, on Thanksgiving, they would have the Twilight Zone marathons, I would sit there and just watch and watch. And this book really brought me back to that and reminded me of why I really liked the, that show. It was because it's such a small book and it, it, it seems like it's such a slight story, but there's so much in it. It asks these strange questions alongside these really deep, profound questions about, you know, who gets to have agency because Dolores is an exception to these men. She's sentient. Her sentience brings up the question of who gets to have agency and what makes us human and is it our memories and our pain that make us human and what happens when Mm. we are able to distance ourselves from those memories and that pain and to forget them altogether? Is it the ability to create memories that make us human and keep us holding on to our humanity and, and figuring ourselves out? So Men is just this book that lingers long after you've put it down. And it was thought-provoking to the point I found myself recommending it to everyone and anyone. Mm. And I read it earlier this year, back in January before it was released, and I've basically been waiting for people to read it so we can all talk about it. And it was actually just released late in May, so I'm really excited. Now you're now you're happy. I am. <laughs> Uh, so is that the top book you'd recommend to read this summer? Yes, I would definitely read that. It's a great book uh, for summer, not only because it's, it's sort of a quick read. I tend to like quick reads in the summertime. Yeah. And it's a small book. You can fit it in your beach bag. But it's also, there's something so bright about it. And it just has that, it has everything I like in summer reading. It sounds like a heavy story, but... There's so much clarity in the writing and the storytelling that I think it's it's definitely a great pick for the summer. I could definitely stay on with you for a lot of time and hear more, <laughs> but we're running out of time. So I wanna I wanna close with a question I like to ask our guests, and that is what's the book that changed your life, Sharifa? Oh wow. That is a tough one. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. I think that Really, the it's actually a series that really changed how I read as an adult. And it really is what got me back into young adult books, which I really enjoy personally. 
Terry Pratchett's Tiffany Aching series. Mm. And I have always loved Terry Pratchett. Actually, that's a lot. When I first came to Terry Pratchett as a child, I had a lot of difficulty understanding his sense of humor. And the thing I love most in books now, there's a part of me that really just seeks out humorous stories that are also smart. And Terry Pratchett is just, he was just a phenomenal writer. That series, the Tiffany Aching series, taught me a lot about how young adult writing can be super smart and it can teach lessons to adults even. Uh, When you think that you've learned everything about life or um, that you can't get anything from a comedic and lighthearted story, there's just so much power in the actual story. I I just find myself going back to that series every time I need to remember what great writing looks like and how powerful, simple stories can be. So I would, I would say Tiffany Aiken is definitely among the impactful stories I've read in my life. Well, Sharifa, you know, I'm not a science fiction fantasy uh, reader generally, and I've, I've loved listening to you talk about them because it makes me realize that I need to dip in. So I might Excellent. listen to your podcast or pick up on your recommendation that you made earlier. Uh, we've been talking to Sharifa Williams, who's an associate editor at Book Riot, which does a great job with everything books, and uh, Sharifa's hosts two different podcasts for them. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, including Joanne Lipman's That's What She Said, and book recommendations from Book Riot, just go to bookpodcast.com. And next week on Just the Right Book Podcast, we will hear my conversation with Michael Chabon. His latest book, Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces, was just a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation about being a father, about being a son, about parenting. It was, it was just great. He was so lovely to speak with. We'll also be giving away a $100 gift card to Just the Right Books subscription service. This is a way of like having your own personal bookseller. You let Just the Right Book know what you like to read, and then they pick out a book just for you, and you can get a book every month or uh, six times a year or four times a year. And this way you'll have a $100 gift card to use to get your own personal bookseller. Not, not bad. To enter to win, you just go to Just the Right Book Podcast on Instagram and see the post for details. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>